0: Good morning, church. It's good to sing together and to be together on a cold morning. It's going to be even colder next Sunday, but we're still planning on gathering together, Lord willing, uh, and celebrating the birth of Christ uh, through corporate worship. Uh, I want to also just say hello to Jay and Melissa and Haynes' family that is with us from a place that is much warmer, Hawaii. (laughs) So Welcome. Hope you enjoy the cold burst while you're here, but it's so good to see you guys and to have you with us this morning. Um, Hope we can, uh, after the service, stay and talk with you guys some for sure. But uh, let's get started this morning. You can open to the book of Ruth, and as you do that, the author J.R.R. Tolkien wrote this line into The Lord of the Rings to question, is everything sad going to come untrue? Is everything sad going to come untrue? Now, I need to admit, if I'm going to quote this line, that I've never read these books. I've actually never finished even the first of the movies that are based on them because they are so long. But I can say this. If one of Tolkien's goals was to write a book that pointed beyond itself to the hope of the gospel story, then this line makes it a success. Is everything sad going to come untrue? You know, the Bible unashamedly holds out to us the prospect of a happy ending. This is the hope of Scripture. One day, everything sad is going to come untrue. Everything evil is going to be undone. Everything broken is going to be made right. That that, that is what Scripture tells us is coming one day. In the book of Ruth, we've been walking through the story during this Advent season, and today we are coming to the end of the story. It began with death. It will end with life. It began with widowhood. It will end with marriage. It began with emptiness. It will end with fullness. It began with bitterness. It will end with joy. It began with darkness. It will end with light. And the way that all this happens is through the faithful love of a Redeemer. Our text is Ruth chapter 4, and the way that we're going to walk through the story this morning is by looking at four different types of redeemers that make an appearance in this final chapter. Four types of redeemers that we see in Ruth chapter 4. We'll start in verses 1 through 6 with a forgotten redeemer. A forgotten redeemer. Let's look at Ruth chapter 4, and we'll start by reading 1 through 6. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who's come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Let's remember what we saw last week in Ruth chapter 3. In a wise but risky venture, Ruth approached Boaz in the night at the threshing floor. And to make a long and very unfamiliar story short, what she was doing was asking for Boaz to act as hers and Naomi's redeemer and to take her in marriage. Boaz was glad to accept this request, but we saw there was an obstacle in the way, which is this. There was a closer relative. There was a closer redeemer to Naomi's deceased husband, Elimelech, and this man had the first right of redemption. Boaz was not going to go around what the law said, so Boaz promised Ruth that he would speak to this relative, this other redeemer, and, and, and that if this relative wanted to redeem her, then, then good, she'd be redeemed, but if not, he promised that he would redeem her himself. And this is what he goes to do the very next morning. The scene takes place at the city gate. This was like the town square in ancient Israelite cities. It was the place where the people would be. It was the place where judgments and decisions and transactions would be made. Boaz arrives early, and as everyone begins coming by at the start of the day, Boaz gets everybody in place for this conversation he's about to have. So the nearer relative comes, and Boaz says, sit down over here, and then the elders start coming, and one by one, he sits ten elders down over here. We can see in all this, Boaz is diligent to make sure that everything that's about to happen is above board and, and not suspect to any later questioning. He wants to do this right. I mean, that, that's, that's what you want to do when you're proposing, right? Do it right. Don't, don't think, think it through. <laughs> that's what Boaz is doing. He's diligent in this moment. He begins the impromptu meeting, not by discussing Ruth and Naomi, but by discussing Elimelech's land that Naomi is putting up for sale because of her impoverished situation. This is how the redemption laws were. If someone had fallen into poverty, they could could sell their land, and and then a Redeemer, a relative, could redeem it and, and keep the land in the family. The Old Covenant law in this case was that a relative could redeem the land, the family could keep their inheritance, and it would cost the Redeemer at first, but... Ultimately, this is important for the story, as long as there's no children involved, that land that a redeemer bought would become part of his own inheritance. And so this man jumps at the opportunity and he says, I will redeem it. I'll do it. And at this point, as we're following the story, we should think, that's not how this is supposed to go. He's not the right guy. He's supposed to be with the other guy, right? He says, I will redeem it. Now, once the man agrees to redeem the land, Boaz has held something back. It seems that he suspected that this man maybe wasn't the right man, maybe not a worthy man. This is the time of the judges, the time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so he's held back this piece of information until now. He says there's more to it than the land. You also must acquire Naomi's daughter-in-law, Ruth the Moabite, to perpetuate the name of Elimelech. And here's the effect of what Boaz is saying. One commentator translates it this way, he says, you must marry her in order to raise up a child for the dead man who will inherit the field when he grows up. And so upon hearing this, the, the man immediately changes his mind. And he says, I, I cannot redeem it lest I impair my own inheritance. So what what changed his mind? You see, when it was just the land that was in view, this would have been a beneficial opportunity for the Redeemer to gain something. It would have cost him in the short term, but it would have paid off in the long term for this land to become his. Naomi wasn't going to bear a son, but once Ruth is in the picture, the situation's entirely different. In that case, he would be paying to redeem the land, paying to work the land, and in the end, it would not belong to him. There would be no personal gain from this transaction for his own family. there would only be the costs associated with keeping the land for someone else to take in the long run. Well, how are we to interpret this man's decision? The author tells us how, and he does so not by saying, this was a wicked deed, but he does so in a unique way. He withholds the man's name from us. We don't ever get this guy's name. We don't know who he is. This man, who is so intent on preserving his inheritance, is anonymous today. Sinclair Ferguson comments on what the author is doing here. He says, The anonymity of the relatives serves to underline that this man has no role in the advance of God's kingdom. He will have no further significance. He will remain unnamed, and he will have no place in the record of God's glorious purposes. He is a forgotten redeemer. And here's what we learn from this forgotten redeemer today. Those who act out of self-interest will be forgotten in God's kingdom. Those who act out of self-interest will be forgotten in God's kingdom. It seems apparent from the way that the story unfolds that this man was technically observing the letter of the law. Technically, he was, he was within his rights to decline redemption in this situation. He was under no legal obligation to redeem Ruth the Moabite. However, he disobeyed the spirit of the law entirely. The spirit of love for God and love for one's neighbor. He chose to act based on what he perceived would be beneficial to him rather than what would be beneficial to someone else. And what we need to realize is that those who act as he did will be forgotten in God's kingdom as he was. As God's people, we're called to live a life that is oriented toward others. We're called to love our neighbors as ourselves. We're called to treat others the way we would want to be treated. We're called not to please ourselves, but to pursue the good of others, even to the point of sacrifice. This Redeemer intent on maintaining His name in Israel is forgotten today. The warning for us is not to live like this forgotten Redeemer. Turn away this morning from a self-oriented way of life and begin living for the benefit of those around you, even if it costs Well, this brings us to the second type of redeemer we see in this passage, a famous redeemer. A famous redeemer. Let's read verses 7 through 12. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Maulon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Maulon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephathra and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So this next part of the story begins with an action that not only seems strange to us, apparently it was foreign even to the original readers because the author has to explain this was the custom in former times in Israel. So even the original readers are thinking, what's with this sandal thing? They say, well, this was the custom in former times. In redeeming and exchanging, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. Now, there are a few possible connections to this custom, but we don't really know exactly where this came from. We don't really need to know. What we do need to know is that this other redeemer and Boaz publicly attested to the transaction before the elders. So this man ever tried to change his mind. If this man ever went, went back and said, actually, I do want a redeemer. Boaz and the elders could say, you gave up your sandal. Boaz says, I've got your sandal. It's right here. You've just got one sandal on. You can't change your mind. Now, here's why this is significant to the story because it means, listen, this means that the redemption we've been waiting for has actually happened. This is the moment that redemption happens. This is like the exchanging of reins in the wedding ceremony. This is like the dean of the school handing you your diploma as you walk across the stage for graduation. This makes it official. Boaz has redeemed Naomi's land and redeemed Ruth to be his wife. Redemption has happened. The witnesses respond by offering up a prayer of blessing for Ruth and for Boaz. For Ruth, they pray, may the Lord make the woman who's coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. It's an amazing prayer. You may remember that Rachel and Leah were the two wives of Jacob through through whom the 12 tribes of Israel came. These were the matriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. And now the people of Israel are praying that Ruth the Moabite would fulfill the same function as the mothers of the tribes of Israel. It's an amazing prayer that they would discern that this is a true, faithful Israelite at heart. This foreigner who has come to take refuge under the wings of the Lord, may she build up Israel as Rachel and Leah built up Israel. And for Boaz, they prayed, may you act worthily in Ephathraim, be renowned in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Now we can understand a little more easily the connection to Rachel and Leah as the mother of the twelve tribes, but why are the people making a connection to the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah? Well, the significance of this lies in three details. First, Boaz came from the line of Judah And Perez. Second, Jacob had prophesied that Israel's future king would come from this line. And third, Tamar, too, if you remember from Genesis, was a foreign widow whose brother in law would not fulfill his duties of redemption. And the people who are witnessing what's happening perceive the similarity between the situation. They perceive the significance of what God did then and what God is doing now. And so they pray that just as God carried on the line of Judah through Tamar's son, Paris, that God would also carry on the line of Judah through the son of Ruth and Boaz. They perceive what's happening as a significant happening. Now at the center of their prayer for Ruth and for Boaz are these two dual requests. May you act worthily and may you be renowned. Now we know that these prayers were answered because of how we were introduced to Boaz in chapter 2. He came down in history as a worthy man. A man who acted worthily, a man who was renowned. This is the reputation of Boaz, a worthy man through his godly character. He became a famous redeemer. Unlike the first redeemer, who acted out of self-interest, Boaz was not forgotten. Boaz is renowned today. This teaches us this truth, that those who act out of faithful love will be renowned in God's kingdom. Those who act out of faithful love will be renowned in God's kingdom. From the time that we first met Boaz to now, he has continually gone above and beyond to extend God's faithful love to Ruth and Naomi. He has not acted out of self-interest or self-protection. He's acted out of interest for others. He's acted out of self-sacrifice. He's lived out the spirit of the law, extending grace and kindness to this family who needed protection and provision and hope. He's an example of the truths that Jesus has taught us, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. You see, those who act out of faithful love, like Boaz, here on this earth, are the greatest in the kingdom of God. Those who worthily extend God's own covenant kindness to others will be renowned in God's kingdom. Now as we read this, as we think about this, as I preach this, you may have this question that I had in the back of my mind this week. Does being renowned in God's kingdom really matter? Should that matter to us? Is the reward of renown in God's kingdom a good and proper motivation for godliness? After, Aren't we just to do everything for the glory of God? Should we really be motivated by this idea of being renowned? If pursuing renown on earth is wrong, then isn't pursuing renown in the kingdom even more wrong? If you're like me, you're asking these questions, you might feel a little bit resistant to This truth that those who act out of faithful love will be renowned in the kingdom. But we don't need to be resistant to this truth, church. We don't need to be unsettled by this. And and here's the reason why the renown that we aim for, the renown of the kingdom, is not renowned from man, but renowned from the Lord Himself. We make it our aim to please Him. The deepest desire of our hearts is that he would become greater and we would become less. We don't regard praise from man here on earth or in God's kingdom. We regard to hear from the Lord himself, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. All we want is to, is to bring delight to the heart of God. This is the kind of renown that we aim for. The kind of renown that Boaz has as his, his history is recorded to us in the scriptures And so let's follow the example of Boaz, those who have received of God's faithful love. Let's extend that faithful love toward others in everything we do. This leads to the third type of redeemer we see this morning, a faithful redeemer, a faithful redeemer, verses 13 through 17. Before we read these next verses, we need to remember chapter 1 for a moment this morning. As we saw in chapter 1, the book of Ruth is not so much about Ruth, as it is about Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi. Let's return to her words in chapter 1. When she first returned to Bethlehem, verses 20 and 21, this is what Naomi said then. She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Naomi and her family had gone far from the land and from the Lord, and she believed as she returned, without a husband, without sons, that the Lord was against her. But now, look at how her story ends in chapter 4, verses 13-17. through So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. You know, the book of Ruth is filled with the reality of the providence of God. Throughout the story, God is working behind the scenes, as it were, to bring about his purposes. But two times in the book, two times, this language of hidden providence gives way to the language of direct divine involvement. The first time was chapter 1, verse 6. The Lord visited his people and gave them food. And here's the other time. The Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Two times where the language of providence gives way to the language of divine intervention. Why is that? Why does the author choose these two moments to say the Lord did that? God did that. We know God's doing everything in this book, but he's he's putting the spotlight on it here. Because it teaches us that ultimately it's the Lord himself who is Naomi's faithful redeemer. It's the beginning and the end of her story. He's the one that called her to return through the good news of the food he provided. The Lord began this work in her by bringing food to his people. And now at the end of the story, the Lord is the one who gives conception and gives her a son. The Lord is the one who fills her emptiness by providing her with a son. This is God's work. And once again, the people of Israel perceive that. They know Naomi's story and they see what has happened and they cry out to her, Blessed be the Lord. They're saying, He's not against you, Naomi. He's for you. He's not left you empty, Naomi. He's filled you. He's replaced your bitterness with joy. Praise His name, Naomi. He's given you a Redeemer. And the evidence of that is that she's got this little child in her lap who will be to her a restorer of life and a nourisher in her old age. From Naomi's story, we learn, again, this truth, that those who return to the Lord will be filled in God's kingdom. Those who return to the Lord will be filled in God's kingdom. Naomi went far from God, but God is faithful to his people. And when she returned, he filled her emptiness with his blessings. Church, he is a faithful redeemer, and through Naomi's story, he calls us to return, and he promises to fill us when we do. Now, for Naomi, this, this filling meant the bringing of an heir, this returning meant coming back to the land, but what does it look like today for us to return, and how does the Lord fill us today? Let's focus first on what does it mean to return to the Lord to return to the Lord first, we need to recognize that we have strayed from Him. We need to recognize that we have gone away from Him. You see, none of us have a right relationship with God in this world. We've all sinned against Him, and we've loved and served other gods, the gods of success, the gods of pleasure, the gods of acceptance from others, the gods of security. We've all gone far from the Lord. And as His children, we continually stray. We, continually are, we are prone to wander, aren't we? We need to recognize that when we've gone far from the Lord, we need to see that we have left Him. And then recognizing that, we need to return through repentance. We return through repentance. We need to turn away from the idols that we have set up. We need to turn away from the things that we were turning to as our source of trust, as our source of hope, as our source of satisfaction. We need to turn away from these things, confess our sins to the Lord, and seek His forgiveness through His Son, Jesus. We need to commit our hearts to worshiping Him alone as our God, coming back to Him and saying, You alone, I will serve and worship and trust. We return to the Lord today, not through moving from one land to another, but through the repentance of the heart. And when we repent, the Lord promises He will fill us. He will fill us. He filled Naomi through the birth, of Ruth's son, Obed. For us, though, his blessings come to us through another birth, the birth of another son. And this leads us to the final type of redeemer that we see in the story, a future redeemer. A future redeemer. Look at verses 18 to 22. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. So most of our stories today end with, and they and they lived happily ever after. This book ends with a genealogy, which comes across, I admit, at first, just as a bit odd and dry and potentially Boring if you don't see what the author's doing. Now it's true that Naomi and Ruth and Boaz's story does have a happy ending. But as the author closes, he wants us to see that this story hasn't actually been just about them. This is not just their story. The genealogy is how he does that. This story is not just about Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. This story is about Israel. This story is about God's people. This story is about God's work to bring humanity back to himself. The genealogy begins with Perez. And we saw earlier that Perez was the son of Judah, the future king of Israel, who was to come from the line of Judah. The genealogy reveals then that Boaz is part of this line. This is where we learn That Boaz is part of the line that goes back through Perez to Judah. And this changes how we read the story. This, This changes how we see Boaz throughout the story. Once we learn this piece of information and we read it again, now we see a whole new plot develop. As we read through Ruth the last few weeks, we've been asking this question. Will God provide Naomi and Ruth with a Redeemer through Boaz? Will God provide a son through Boaz so that Naomi and Ruth can be redeemed? But now we see something much bigger. The story is not, will Ruth have a son? The big question of the story is, will Boaz have a son? Will the line of Perez continue? Will God bring about his promise of a seed who will reign as king of his people over the tribe of Judah? Will God do that? Will Boaz have a son so that God's promises can continue to his people Israel? It's Israel that needs redemption, not just Naomi. And now we realize that. Boaz is a descendant of Perez, the son of Judah, through whom the future king would come. The story of Ruth reaches back into this history to show that God, even during the time of the judges, had not forgotten his promises. It doesn't only reach back, it also reaches forward. Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. The son born to Ruth and Boaz would be the grandfather of King David, the shepherd boy after God's own heart from this same little town of Bethlehem who would bring peace to Israel from their enemies, prosperity to the promised land. Ruth, the Moabite, was David's great-grandmother. During the days of the judges, when there was no king in the land of Israel, when everyone did what was right in their own eyes, even then, God was preparing the way for the king that they really needed. And from all this, we learn another truth. Those who trust in the Lord will be used to advance God's kingdom. Those who trust in the Lord will be used to advance God's kingdom. I can't help but feel that that is a major understatement as we read the story of Ruth. You know, it's likely, if not a sure thing, that Boaz and Naomi and Ruth never knew that their great-grandson would be the great King David. It's likely that they never saw the ways that God redeemed their sufferings and their circumstances to advance His kingdom. And we should learn from that. We need to learn from that this morning. God is working in the details of our lives that make absolutely no sense to us. And have you ever wondered why God? Have you ever felt like God's just piling on in your life? Why would you let all these things happen? Why would, you, why would you do all these things in my life? God is working in these details. God is working in our sufferings that make us wonder if he's turned against us. God is working even just in our obscurity, in our smallness, in little everyday faithfulness. God is working all of these ways to do something that is way beyond what we could ever imagine. God is at work in your life, and if you will trust him, he will use you to advance his kingdom purposes in this world. No one exemplifies this more than Ruth. The story is called Ruth, because Ruth trusted the Lord. Ruth took refuge in the Lord during her sufferings. Ruth sought to be faithful to the Lord, and God used Ruth's life to bring about redemption to Naomi, to bring about a son for Boaz, and to bring about a Savior for all God's people. So whatever is happening in your life today, trust that he is working in all those details, in all those sufferings, in all the obscurity, He is working not only for your good, but He's working for His glory in His kingdom. The book of Ruth teaches us that God is doing big kingdom things in small little places, and obscure events that no one else would know anything about. It's an amazing reality to meditate on. Trust Him that He is working in your life for His kingdom purposes. As we close this morning, the amazing thing about all this is that we can see even more of the story than the author of Ruth could see. In Ruth 4, the woman of Bethlehem said this, A son has been born to Naomi. And they prayed, may his name be renowned in Israel. And then they named this son Obed, which means servant of the Lord. A son has been born to Naomi. May his name be renowned, Obed, the servant of the Lord. Well, the truth is that we know next to nothing about Obed outside of this book. As far as we know, he lived an ordinary life of a shepherd or a harvester in Bethlehem. But the woman's words that day were far truer than they realized. To see this, we need to see that Naomi represents us. As we read the book of Ruth, we need to see we are Naomi. We are the ones who have strayed far from the Lord, and we are the ones who need redemption which means that just as they said, a son has been born to Naomi, we can say this morning, unto us a son has been born. Unto us a child has been given. This child's name will be renowned. Beyond Israel, it will be renowned in all the earth. This is the name above every name, and at his name every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. This child is just like his distant ancestor Boaz, who extends the grace of God to the undeserving. He's just like his distant ancestor, Ruth, who expresses the faithful love of the Lord to the hopeless. And this grace and love of God come to us through this child because he is the true Obed, the true servant of the Lord. Matthew 1 traces this exact same genealogy forward from David the king all the way to Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, born of the Virgin Mary in the little town of Bethlehem, who would die on a cross in Jerusalem as a sacrifice for our sins. And this is ultimately who the story of Ruth is all about. Jesus Christ is the Redeemer who's been born to us. He is the servant of the Lord who died for us. He is the King who restores eternal life to us. What all this means for us this morning, church, is that we need to hear the call of the woman to Naomi as a call to us. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He has not left you without a redeemer. He has not left us without a redeemer. Jesus Christ is our redeemer. Let's take refuge in him. Let's return to him. Let's rest in him. Let's rejoice in him together this morning.